Has it been a week already? It's hard to believe. It feels like it was only moments ago that we were recording the other intro. Uh, exactly. <laughs> Life is just passing so quickly at the moment, David. Which, if you are working in a university and marking essays around this point, I'm sure you uh, realise as well. But welcome I'm, to December, listeners. Indeed. And welcome to the Religious Studies Project. I'm David Robertson. And I'm Christopher Carter. And we're brought to you by the British Association for the Study of Religions. The North American Association for the Study of Religions. And the International Association for the History of Religions. My inflection was a little bit odd there, but we'll just roll with it. Um, And it's got to be better than the list of abstract letters that we normally do. This week's podcast is another one with Chris, hence you're hearing my voice far too much at the start of the episodes these days. And it's with Donovan Schaefer on the controversial topic, is secularism a world religion? Well, is it? Tell us. Regular listeners to the Religious Studies Project will know that we're not the biggest fans of the world religions paradigm. Indeed, it was James Cox's excellent introduction to the topic back in February 2013 and the accompanying response that asked what religious studies should do after the world religions paradigm that prompted David and I, with some encouragement from Steve Sutcliffe, Russell McCutcheon and Craig Martin, to co-edit the volume After World Religions, published in February 2016. Listeners will also be relatively familiar with the concept of secularism, the secular and so on, particularly from podcasts with Joe Blancombe on permutations of the secular and with Phil Zuckerman and John Shook on understanding the secular. Today, we thought it would be an interesting exercise to weave these two strands together and rhetorically ask, is secularism a world religion? So I'm joined today to discuss this question by Donovan Schaefer at the British Association for the Study of Religions annual conference at U- the University of Wolverhampton. Dr. Schaefer is departmental lecturer in science and religion in the Faculty of Theology and Religion at Oxford University, and his first book, Religious Affects, Animality, Evolution and Power, was published in November 2015 by Duke, and his current projects on the relationship between emotion, science and secularism. So, Donovan, first off, welcome to the Religious Studies Project. Thanks a lot, Chris. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So, first of all, in the spirit of rhetorically asking, uh, why are we even asking this question? I mean, secularism surely as far removed from the category as world religions as, as we can get. I mean, why, why are you asking it? Yeah, definitely. Um, a lot of recent research has actually challenged that seemingly commonsensical um, argument that secularism is the opposite of religion. Um, This has come from a lot of different directions, um, historical uh, analysis, cultural studies. Um, Even uh, a lot of work in philosophy of religion has started to challenge this idea that there is a clear line uh, between the secular and the religious. Mm. And because they're so intertwined as concepts, even if you were to accept their right. opposites. You've always got to study the opposites within, you know, like you can't know what religion is without studying its supposed opposite anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so perhaps it would be best to start. I mean, we, we've covered the secularization thesis and, and a lot of these topics in other podcasts, but we should, we should start with that. So let, let's paint the context in which this question is being asked. Then. 
Sure. So secularization thesis um, really gets off the ground in the 19th century. Um, it comes from a variety of different quarters um, in the uh, the sort of early movements in sociology, um, some of the early conversations that are being asked in science and religion, um, late 20th century, uh, uh, sorry, late 19th century philosophy of religion. Um, all of these, uh, all of these different conversations start to thematize this idea that religion is a specific thing in the world that is gradually going away. Mm. Now, in the 20th century, um, you have thinkers like uh, Max Weber in sociology um, who formalize this. They make, it, uh, they make it even more of a kind of article of social scientific faith that religion is on a trajectory of decline. What happens, though, is that later in the 20th century, um, you have these uh, historical moments that start to challenge the secularization thesis. Mm-hmm. So um, something like the rise of the religious right in the mm-hmm. United States in the 1970s um, in reaction to things like the civil rights movement um, or, the, uh, uh, or the Roe v. Wade Supreme Court ruling, um, the religious right by the mid to late 1970s has become an incredibly powerful force. And of course, in 1980, um, you have the election of Ronald Reagan mm-hmm. um, with a specifically Christian agenda uh, backing him. Um, or even across the world, something like the Iranian Revolution mm-hmm. in 1978 to 79 um, that creates a new Islamic Republic where previously there had been a secular state. Stuff like this, it's just not supposed to happen, mm-hmm. according to the classical secularization yeah. narrative. There isn't supposed to be a return of religion. Religion is supposed to be um, evaporating. Uh, and that puts a... It puts pressure on the classical secularization narrative. So mm-hmm. scholars throughout the 1980s, 1990s, um, and up to the present have started to ask questions about the secularization narrative and have come up with a very robust dialogue about what went wrong with the classical secularization paradigm and what will replace it. Mm. And that also sort of introduces an ideological element, the sort of idea right. that the notion of secularization is itself a form of ideology. It's a sort of thinking of the way things should be. It's Definitely. not mirroring yeah. reality. Right. Um, so we've already alluded to, um, even if these things are dichotomous opposites, studying them alongside each other. So many of us at universities will be familiar with the standard introductory sort of here's a survey of world religions like religion 101 or something so i think one of the questions you're really asking is should where's the place of the secular in that sort of religion 101 class yeah exactly um is it a world religion so if we're going to segue into that we're going to need to talk about what's a world religion, first of all, yeah. um, and then ask why we might want to try and fit the secular into that mold. Yeah. I mean, really, I should be asking you that, but I, <laughs> I guess my uh, my take on it um, is that the idea of world religions, uh, again, has its emergence in the 19th century. It comes out of uh, these 19th century um, thinkers like Max Mueller, um, who are interested in making the study of religion into a science. They want to, uh, they want to formalize the study of religion um, and uh, turn it into something that 
moves away from the obviously supremacist um, classification scheme that had been used previously um, in uh, in Western Europe. Um, that said, though, um, Tomoko Masazawa, uh, in her book, The Invention of World Religions, um, is actually, even though she spends a great deal of time sort of researching the archives, trying to figure out where this paradigm comes from, even she ultimately says she doesn't know where it comes from. It, mm. uh, it emerges, um, obviously, through a sort of confluence of different conversations um, that are taking place uh, throughout the 19th century and early 20th century. Um, where precisely it comes from is, uh, is a little bit uh, opaque. Regardless, what we're left with by the mid to late 20th century is an understanding of religions as discrete objects that can be studied in the world that have particular histories. They're often organized um, under a particular heading, Buddhism, Hinduism, Christianity, mm -hmm. Judaism. Um, and they're very often uh, structured around a specific text and a specific set of practices. Um, and that structure is something that has become, at least at the level of the dissemination of religious studies um, in terms of undergraduate teaching, uh, central. Yes. How did I do? <laughs> you, did, you did well, sir. You did well. And it's, um, yeah, so it, it's sort of ubiquitous in undergraduate teaching and it's ubiquitous in societies. You know, we think about... right. What is your religion? That's a question that makes sense to people, and then we we have these certain silos that right. we we try and put that into. So, yeah, this has been, regardless of the origins of it, this has been subjected to a number of critiques. Right? So, it's very Protestant, for example. Yeah. Um, that that idea of a text and it being about belief, um, you can only have one faith and all that sort of thing. It, it this seemingly objective model suddenly becomes, oh, that's a little bit Protestant. Definitely. And also something that I think uh, we can see as being a byproduct of a particular idiom of 19th century science. 19th mm -hmm. century science, it's the, um, it's the age of classification, it's the age of grand theories, um, and that prism divides up the world in a particular way. Um, and I think that we can see the world religions paradigm as being product of that particular way of thinking about the world mm. and that particular way of thinking about the world is also deeply connected with colonialism as Definitely. well we were encountering others and then Absolutely. classifying them um classify and conquer was uh i think it was max Müller's term and then of course it encourages this notion that there is a thing called religion that is made manifest in various forms so right russ mccutcheon would take uh great issue with that yeah um so given all that problem with the world religions paradigm why would we want to try and uh try and fit secularism into that model what would sure be the, what yeah would be the point shouldn't we just be jettisoning it yeah right well i mean i have a few thoughts on that um i am not i'm not blanketly hostile to the world religions paradigm i think that uh i would give it about a six out of ten or a seven out of ten in terms of a pedagogical tool for explaining religion to undergraduates especially if we start from the assumption that many undergraduates are only going to take one religious studies class mm. is the world religions paradigm necessarily the best way of doing that i'm not sure but i uh i don't think that it necessarily is um evil however I do think that it needs to be deconstructed from within. I think that precisely as we're teaching students um, 
within this framework, we need to be calling attention to the limitations of this framework. And part of the reason why I think it's important to talk about secularism within that context is because I think that it sets the stage for a conversation about the world religions paradigm in and of itself. Mm. Yes, and the paradigm, you know, I think it was my colleague Kate Daly Bailey described it as a, you know it's a useful way of getting people from one side of the road to the other. Absolutely. And if that's if that's what you need to do, you get them there. But you can also along the way be explaining to them why you chose that way of doing it. Exactly. It wasn't the best. Yeah. Right. Um, okay. So let's let's do this then. Let's uh, let's take a world religions model. And let's take the the notion of secularism. So, um, how are we going to go about ask, answering the question: Is it a world religion? Definitely. So, this is where I want to get a conversation started. I don't have clear answers to this, but I, what I sort of see us doing is shuffling the deck of secularism studies into the deck of the world religions paradigm, mm. and just seeing what comes out on the other end. So, I think that in terms of a kind of structure and overall architecture to this, there would be two ways of doing it. Um, so secularism studies scholars have, roughly speaking, two ways of talking about secularism. One of the ways of talking about it is to say that secularism is itself a particular iteration of Protestant Christianity. Um, mm. That we have the version of secularism that we have because we uh, are an offshoot of a cultural historical context that um, defined religion in a particular way. This goes mm. back to something that you were saying earlier about the inextricability of the category of religion from the category of the secular. It's precisely because we see religion as something that is potentially uh, private, individualized, and uh, belief-oriented that religion is something that can be relegated to the private sphere and mm -hmm. therefore, um, and therefore uh, secularized um, according to the conventional definition. Yeah, so we could see that like this sort of a, the Hegelian dialectic there. Right. Even looked at Feuerbach, and he would you know we produce the the religion. So yeah, the, the as Christianity secular, you know, as Catholicism changed to Protestantism, that started right. a, started a transition. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, or even uh, like one thing that historians, um, uh, especially intellectual historians like uh, uh, John Z. Smith or Talal Assad, um, when he's wearing that hat, or someone like Craig Calhoun, they really like to emphasize the beginning of modernity in the immediate aftermath of the Protestant Reformation. Yeah. So you could look at it theoretically and the way that religion gets defined as something that is personal rather than corporate. Mm -hmm. You could look at it historically and the way that um, the resolution to the wars of religion that uh, that emerge in the aftermath of the reformation um the political uh the political compromises that are made um in that wake um tend to make religion into something that is detachable it's something that uh, is sort of uh, as Locke puts it something that can be kept in the private sphere rather than mm -hmm. the public sphere all of these all of these um all of these details of Protestantism, um, whether they're sort of part of the 
the DNA of Protestantism or whether they're sort of historical accidents Mm -hmm. that shoot off from Protestantism, they make up the coordinates of what eventually becomes secularism. So one of the ways that I could see us potentially integrating secularism into the world religions classroom would be to talk about it as an offshoot of Christianity. Mm -hmm. When we teach Christianity, we teach secularism as something that Christianity does in exactly the same way as, um, you know, depending on how many days you have for teaching Christianity, you would give a sort of capsule history um, where you would talk about uh, the... Um, the great schisms, um, orthodoxy from Catholicism, Protestantism from Catholicism, and then could also locate secularism as, in a sense, another schism, as another permutation of Christianity um, that is part of the story of Christianity as a world religion. Mm. And indeed, some of the annoyance that um, some proponents of secularism would feel um, with that uh, approach to my mind, indicates the very importance of taking that approach because people don't feel annoyance unless there's some sort of deep connection to the category that you're talking about. I think that's right. And especially building on that, um, if we're talking about teaching students in a Western um, Anglo-Euro-American context, Mm. we're going to be teaching students who are going to be coming from a variety of faith positions, some of whom will be coming from a non-faith position and probably see their status as neutral. They probably see the religions that they're looking at as, um, in a sense, under glass, as something that is uh, uh, disconnected from where they are. And I think it's important for those students to recognize that even the liberal, secular idiom that they might see themselves located within has a history, that it, even it, um, the agenda of that um, is set by a particular set of uh, uh, Christian coordinates. Um, Sabah Mahmoud has done some really excellent work on this, talking about the way that um, these sort of ostensibly secular legal codes throughout Europe um, actually privilege a kind of ghost of Christianity, um, that they mm. are, they're marshaled in the service of defending a sort of Christian heritage, um, and they suppress um, other ways of being religious, yeah. um, even when they, uh, they give Christianity a sort of special prote- protection. Um, perfect example of this would be like the, uh, the burkini ban um, yes. that's been happening in summer of 2016, um, where burkinis, um, this article of clothing that seems like it would be inoffensive enough, has actually become offensive to French secularism, um, precisely because <laughs> it is uh, encoding a set of Christian presuppositions about ways that you are secular and, and religious. And on that note, I saw that um, it was in The Guardian, they, they were quoting sort of the, the ruling on it and said it, it might offend people's brackets, non-close brackets, religious brackets, non-close brackets, convictions. Exactly. So your non-religious non-conviction might be offended by it. There's something interesting exactly. going on Exactly. I think there. that's exactly, I think that that's a really important pedagogical maneuver with students is showing them how even our own um, liberal democratic uh, structures have a sort of conserved uh, Christian genetic coding in them. Mm. That's not to that's not to create an equivalence. That's not yep. to say that the differences aren't meaningful. It's just to say we need to we need to take a critical eye on our own intellectual inheritance rather than presupposing that it's neutral. So all of that would be one way that I would see secularism mm-hmm. entering the um, world religions uh, paradigm. Uh, uh, 
structure. I think there's another way, though, which would be equally interesting. So um, one of the ways that uh, scholars working in the mode of critical secularism studies have approached secularism is to say there is not just one secularism. Yeah. There are, in fact, uh, multiple secularisms. This is the title of a book by uh, an anthology by uh, Janet Jacobson and Anne Pellegrini, Secularisms. Um, and this, as I see it, is sort of coming out of these two sort of uh, uh, kind of uh, guiding lights of the critical secularism studies field, um, Talal Asad and Charles Taylor. Mm -hmm. So Talal Asad is very interested in this idea that the secularism that we have is the result of a particular history. And he says that rather than assuming that secularism is going to be the same everywhere, we anticipate a multiplicity of what he calls formations of the secular. Yeah. There are different secularisms um, that correspond to different historical moments, yeah. and they have different priorities, they have different uh, coordinates, they have different outcomes, precisely because their starting points, these sort of ingredients out of the landscape out of which they secularize, is different. So his uh, his sort of cardinal example of this is the difference between Christianity, especially Protestant Christianity, and Islam. Protestant Christianity deritualizes religion. Mm -hmm. So its version of secularism is a version of secularism that doesn't pay a lot of attention to ritual, doesn't pay a lot of attention to practices. Um, Assad will say, you know, when we have formations of the secular emerging out of Islamic contexts, we need to be attentive to the way that they are... Uh, that they are that they always keep an eye on practices and the version the formations of the secular that emerge in these other contexts will have a different configuration so charles taylor calls this uh, uh he calls this the myth of the subtraction story the mm -hmm. subtraction story is this idea that once you get rid of religion you're left with a neutral landscape yeah. um and indeed, yeah, I'm always fond of using a quotation from my supervisor, Kim Nant, who just said that there is no neutral point from which to observe religion. You know, right. we're, we're participants in that discourse. So would the logical outcome of that then be that if you were incorporating that secularism into the world religions uh, classroom, that you would sort of pair off, you would, ha you would teach Christianity yeah. and Christian secularism, then yeah. Islam and Islamic secularism. Is that That's what I'm thinking of. I'm, I'm, again, I'm presenting this conversationally. This isn't something that I'm um, at a point where I could publish it. Um, but I think that we need to consider this possibility that the best way to teach secularism within the context of a world religions classroom um, would be exactly this pairing to say mm -hmm. that um, Buddhist secularisms, uh, uh, Christian secularisms, Jewish secularisms, even we might want to get more specific than that, like Jewish secularism in the United States is very different from Jewish secularism in Israel. Um, Islamic secularism in uh, Saudi Arabia is very different from Islamic secularism in Iran. Um, to thematize this, I think, would be a really productive way of getting secularism into the conversation, but also raising this idea which i think is one of the challenges that you've um that you've uh, sort of discussed very ably in your own work um with secularism which is the way that it creates this sort of silo model as mm -hmm. you said it um of these religions being sort of ahistorical um uh sort of fixed 
compilations of ideas and practices that can be very easily uh, sort of clinically diagnosed mm. as, you know, like, okay, you've got your, uh, you've got your five pillars, you've got a Muslim. Um, and that's that's not actually adequate. Um, that's never been adequate for teaching what religion is. Um, but it's particularly inadequate in the context of a situation, a global situation now of accelerating mediatization and globalization, where transactions between different traditions are becoming more and more um, uh, more and more rich. Um, they're just more and more. Uh, uh, the dynamic between different traditions is becoming deeper and deeper. And I think that emphasizing that localism of secularism would be a way of raising that to the surface. Mm. And this is exactly the sort of thing that we should be discussing at this conference, with the theme being religion beyond the textbook. Exactly. Um, so, conclusion then. Um, so are you going to do this? Yeah, I think I will. I'm not in a situation right now where I teach um, world religions, um, but as I think about uh, as I think about that syllabus um, next time that that portfolio falls in my lap, it's something that I'm actually quite excited to mm. do, um, precisely because of the way that I think it it reciprocally, reciprocally calls attention to the limits of both the world religions paradigm, which I think is a useful if limited pedagogical tool. Yeah and the secularization narrative. And how do we um, avoid one of the main problems with subversively employing anything, so subversively employing the world religions category, is that your critical intent isn't really communicated to the students. Again, as you say, if they come for a one-semester course and then right. they're gone, they've gone in, they've done the world religions course, they've come out. So say they come to this course and they do a world religions and secularisms thing, and then they come out with this sort of very strict siloed model on Islamic secularism is this, Christian secularism is that. Well, um, is there a danger that going down that route could be sort of reifying the very distinction that we... Yeah, I mean, I think, I think all discourses have dangers. Um, all discourses are going to be provisional ways of organizing the abundance of information that is the world. Um, and they're always going to have certain limitations attached to them. Um, I think that the best that we can do is inhabit those discourses with a sort of deconstructive eye. Um, and my hope is that among other things, I think that there are lots of ways of sort of reciprocally um, critiquing the world religions paradigm while teaching it. Um, mm -hmm. And I've, I've tried to do that in the past when I've taught world religions. Um, I think that this method of introducing secularism as a legitimate object of study within the mm -hmm. architecture of the religious uh, world religions paradigm um, could be a way of amplifying that technique. Yeah. And you know, you can only resist um, the dominant expectations of your students so much before they stop coming to your classes. And also, I can see this being a really good um, exercise, perhaps for higher level students, just to pose the question that we've just asked, is right. secularism a world religion? Set it as an essay topic or something. I could see some really excellent discussions happening there. That would be fascinating. I mean, I think too, like, I, I absolutely agree with what you're saying pedagogically that, I mean, there's only so much we can do to um, 
there's only so much we can do to sort of destabilize the way that students think. Um, but I'm also, I'm also a firm believer in the pedagogical value of inhabiting something from the inside in order to destabilize it, mm -hmm. um, rather than standing so far outside of it that students can't necessarily see what you're doing. Yeah. Um, and my hope is, and again, I mean, this is just uh, this is just an optimism. It's not something that uh, I've actually put into play. Mm -hmm. um, and really, I see it more as a st conversation starter um, in pedagogy circles than anything. Um, my hope is that this uh, practice of introducing secularism as an object of study within the context of the world religions paradigm would be a way of inhabiting that paradigm from the inside and leaving students with a very vivid impression of its own limitations. That is a wonderful way to end. Um, it was bang on half an hour. So thanks so much, Donovan. Thanks so much, Chris. This was wonderful. Well, I very much enjoyed recording that interview with Donovan and, um, we we both were in the session where he presented that paper at the BASR. Um, yeah, I was going to mention that. There was an odd moment. It wasn't the best attended of sessions. I don't think it got the audience it deserves, let's put it that way. But um, I think there was eight or nine people in the room of whom two of uh, two of were myself and Chris. And then he immediately showed a picture of, of uh, our book, the RSP um, volume, you know, After World Religions, which you should read if you haven't um and and started attacking our argument which was but he didn't attack our argument i, I thought it was wonderful I every <laughs> minute of it but uh yeah but no it, it was one of those lovely moments that was sort of the, the yeah first proper one in my career in quotation marks yeah and so uh hopefully the catchy title there will have dragged in some listeners you might have thought what what that's ridiculous <laughs> um but um hearing donovan talk about it as a an interesting thought experiment as a way of um sort of dismantling in a way the the hegemony of the paradigm Indeed, itself, and problematizing the term and its um its application and and the rest of it and chris and i have talked um, about an after after world religions be it a journal or a, a second volume of the book and uh, donovan is going to contribute to that hopefully if yeah, you, you and hear, when it ever happens you hear that donovan you're under contract now he he gave me a verbal agreement and in scotland that's legally binding it was in helsinki but uh, i wolverhampton same difference was it yes huh. well, either way i'm scottish <laughs> so that's binding <laughs> I think we may be showing too much of the, the man behind the curtain this week. Exactly. Um, next week, finally, it's an interview from David. Um, so, well, no, David did one a few weeks ago. So I've, I'm, I've not, done plenty. I'm not implying that you haven't been pulling your weight. I'm implying that I have been pulling my weight rather too much. Not that I've minded, but just that the listeners will mind. So next week, they get to hear you speaking with two lovely gents. Yes. And also with Titus and, and Paul. <laughs> Titus Yelm of UCLA in London, although recorded whilst he's in Helsinki um, on his sabbatical, and Paul-Francois Tremlett of the Open University, um, both previous contributors to the RSP and, um, I think, excellent interviewees. And it's a really interesting conversation, so please do come back. 
Absolutely. And I believe we've got quite a few responses uh, to this week's podcast. So do keep tuning in to our Facebook and Twitter feeds over the coming week or two, and you'll see those guaranteed to be some um, controversy stirred up, I would suggest. On that note, don't forget our YouTube channel that Tommy's been doing a great job of keeping up to date and publicizing. And don't forget to use our uh, Amazon affiliate links, .co.uk.com and .ca. And what I do is I just drag that down into my links bar at the top of my browser. And then so whenever I go to Amazon, I just click there. And that means that anytime I buy anything, that the Religious Studies Project gets 5% of that money Um literally taken out of the hands of the man and given to supporting this excellent, free, innovative platform. Absolutely. So come back next week to hear David, Paul and Titus. But for now, thanks thanks for for listening. listening.